the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. Sports fans, there's no better place to get breaking news, real time commentary, and powerful stories than The Athletic. With comprehensive coverage and insightful analysis built around your favorite teams, The Athletic delivers everything you need and every sports story that matters. Download the app, personalize it with your favorite leagues and teams, and get exclusive ad free content today. Visit theathletic.com slash SpotTrack, S-P-O-T-R-A-C, and get 40% off your first year subscription. Happy Thursday morning. My name is Mike Giannetti. Paul Hembakidis, Hembo from ESPN, joins me in just a few minutes to break down pretty much uh, all things Major League Baseball. You know, CBA negotiations, obviously the World Series, some free agencies, you know, the, the unbelievable shortstop class and how that could shake out. His general thoughts on the devaluation of starting pitching and what that might mean for contracts in the coming weeks. It's a, a real good talk, as always, with Hembo. always love having him back. So that's in a, just a few minutes here. But off the top, it is NFL Trade Week. I've been tweeting like crazy, trying to kind of keep up with the hot stove, much of which I actually believe this year. I think the the rumors that are out there, notably from you know the local beat guys and gals, are pretty on point. I think this is a year where... There's so much going on in terms of the middle of the standings, right? We don't even have a a legit, this is the best team in football. And I realize I'm saying that with an undefeated Cardinals team who just lost J.J. Watt for the year, who could be up against a pretty good contender here in Green Bay this week. So that's obviously the team to beat, but I don't think anybody's saying they're the clear and away, you know, lead horse in this race in terms of the Super Bowl. So I do think there's a good mix of want to be contenders in the middle of these standings. And that generally means decent amount of movement at the trade deadline because teams understand their weaknesses by this point. They know where they can add depth. And generally, that's what you see good teams do. And by the way, there's a, f- a bunch of bad teams that are looking to shed cap, shed cash, can get some kind of mid-round draft pick for a halfway decent player. So the plan here quickly is I'm just going to kind of bring a few notable names up at each position group. Because now that I've been doing this for about a week and a half, I do have a decent list that I can roll down. And I won't give too many numbers here. You can see it um, broken down pretty well at SpyTrack on Twitter. I've got a thread that starts with Brandon Cooks. And there's probably a dozen or so, maybe more now, full breakdowns of what the new team would get in terms of money and what the dead cap for the old team would be in terms of money. And uh, I'm doing that for basically all of these players that I believe are legitimately on the trade block right now, heading towards November 2nd. So let's start with quarterbacks. Obviously, Deshaun Watson's the uh, the low-hanging fruit out there. It's a big breakdown. Um, why is this happening now? To me, all you have to do is look at the contract to understand why this is happening now and why this is happening amidst a mess of legal disasters, really, surrounding his entire world. But it's only $6.5 million, less than that, to take him on right now. And even if he hits the commissioner's exemplus, which the NFL says he will not, but even if he did, that's probably worth Miami's time or Philly's time or whoever's really going to be in on this to assess this situation, let it play out, let the legal matters go through their process as they should. And then next year is when this thing really starts to kick in. So it's six and change this year. 35, 37, and that's where the guarantees fall off. Then 32, 32, a fluff after that. So you're getting a a real discount 
even for a player who might not be playing this year. And then two, you know, basically $72 million over the next two years. And then you can kind of dispense as needed. In other words, it's a four-year deal. That's actually a two-year deal that can be restructured as needed cap wise. So it's extremely friendly from a financial standpoint. So that's why somebody's trying to get this guy right now, in my opinion, it's all about the contract. Uh, other quarterbacks who could be on the move, obviously no, nobody of real name. I don't believe Nick Foles is out there and it's not because teams don't want him and it's not because the Bears don't want to get rid of him. Nick Foles has fully guaranteed this year and $4 million guaranteed next year. To me, that's just too much. You know, Even if you're looking for a decent backup and some of these teams should be. I, think the, I do think the Indianapolis Colts could use him for this and next year. I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't think Carson Wentz will allow that. And I'm being perfectly honest when I say that. I don't think he wants any part of Nick Foles <laughs> in his quarterback room right now. So I, uh, that's the team I've identified. Now, Seattle could probably do something like this. You know, the Jets probably should have considered this for a two-year run because I don't know what Joe Flacco is going to do for them at all for the next seven weeks. But there's, uh, there's, there's probably teams that would like him, but I think it's too expensive to even consider. And Jimmy Garoppolo is not getting traded at the deadline. Jimmy Garoppolo may get traded or outright released after 2021. But to me, he is not even close to on this trade block right now. He is the starting quarterback, if healthy, of that team for the rest of the season. Um, so there may be some smaller quarterback move, moves out there, but nothing worth talking about here to, outside of Deshaun Watson, to be perfectly frank. Running backs, certainly Marlon Mack is on this list. Um, we saw Mark Ingram move. I knew it was going to be one of Mark Ingram and, and or David Johnson. David Johnson still might move a pass catching running back who can go to a contender and help him, you know, score some points that still may happen. And I'm going to add him to the list shortly, but Marlon Mack is certainly on this list. There's a, you know, half, I would have to imagine three, four teams interested uh, at this point in time, you know, Seattle, Kansas city, Baltimore, there's gotta be some options out there for this guy. It's $555,000 to get him at the deadline. So what's that worth you? A fourth, fifth round pick. It, it's, it's, it's a really good value for a, what could be your RB1 for 10 weeks. So I do think that happens. Fringe guys, I mentioned Johnson. I'm going to put Melvin Ingram in this conversation, but it's a little bit expensive. It's a little bit expensive. I, I imagine now that Denver's sliding backwards as quickly as they are, that they, they'll want to flip it over to Javante Williams sooner rather than later. He's obviously a player. Um, so he's on this list, but it's probably too expensive to move right now. That's probably just going to have to become a free agency situation for a lot of teams. And other than that, you know, you're going to see probably some death moves of less importance. But again, Mark Ingram was the big move in this one. You know, does Baltimore maybe purge some of those veterans? They've got Bell and Freeman and, and Murray, who's injured now. But we'll see what happens there. Wide receivers, this could be one of the most interesting position groups at this deadline. I've mentioned Brandon Cooks. He's, he's probably the top trade candidate right now for a lot of these contenders, Kansas City, Green Bay, you know, maybe even a Buffalo right now. But that's a player who we've seen move to two contender teams before and make a huge impact immediately. It's less than one and a half million dollars to get him for the rest of this year. And nothing of next year is guaranteed. It's $13 million, zero guaranteed. So it's really good value for what could be a legitimate downfield threat for you for the rest of the stretch run. So that one's going to happen in my opinion. Two guys that I guess they're fringe. I, Allen Robinson would be a great get by any team, but it's almost $11 million to get him right now. So unless the Bears are going to eat some of that money off the rest of that franchise tag to, to buy themselves a better draft pick, 
I don't think that's going to happen, but we've seen it happen before. So he's on the list. And then the Jets with Jamison Crowder. Crowder's basically fourth on that depth chart right now. Some of these younger guys, and certainly Corey Davis, have really kind of taken stride over the last couple of weeks. Now there's a quarterback situation, so I don't know if that's going to continue. But maybe even more reason to move on from this guy now that things have really kind of fallen off on the offensive side of the ball. I, I do think he's attractive. It's about $3 million to get him right now, unless the Jets do some work on that. But... He'll be out there as maybe the second best option available at this deadline, and he's certainly on this list. Tight ends, we'll move quickly here. Evan Engram was going to be a slam dunk, but he's hurt, and he's a bust. He's just a bust. I don't know, I, I don't know how to say this otherwise. The best evaluation I can give you for Evan Engram heading, heading into the open market is $6.9 That's nuts for where he was drafted. And by the way, same with Njoku, same with OJ Howard. It was just a terrible class of tight ends, unfortunately. Highly drafted tight ends. So, you know, it's three and a half million almost to get him right now for the rest of the year. I can't fathom a team now with the injury taking that on. But this guy, I think Hayden Hurst moves out of Atlanta, A, because Kyle Pitts is the monster we thought he was going to be, and B, because I think Hayden Hurst has been pushed to the background, but he's actually a very viable, productive wide or tight end option. Buffalo's got a tight end injury now with Dawson Knox. They don't have too much depth now for the next three, four weeks. I think it's a slam dunk. It's about a million dollars to take him on. You could restructure that if you need to. I think this is a slam dunk for the Bills. And uh, you're talking sixth, maybe seventh round pick to get it done. So that one seems like it's likely. Offensive line, I've got a couple here. But the big one to me is Andrew Norwell, the guard from the Jaguars. I, I think Jacksonville has to purge some more contracts here. I really do. I think if they're going to make this Urban Meyer system, he's got to start doing his work right now and not sit on his hands. I, I haven't been happy with the lack of work they've done on that roster. I think they tried to keep too much of it in tow and not make it the system that he wants it to be, especially with Lawrence now. This is a brand new quarterback. Why aren't they building a, an offense around him specifically? So to me, you got two years left in this contract with Norwell. It's about six and a half million to get him this year, which is expensive, but we saw it with the Chiefs last year. You can't have too much offensive line depth heading towards the Super Bowl. So if you're a big-time contender, if you're Baltimore, if you're one of these teams that has injuries, the offensive line, Indianapolis, if you think you contend, this is an option for you. I think you got to make this kind of move. All right, edge rushers. I like these options, and I think plenty of these teams will too. Melvin Ingram with the Steelers was a steal the second he we signed there, no pun intended. It was $4 million with some incentives built into that. I mean... We're talking $650,000 to get Melvin Ingram off this trade block right now. I have to think Dallas, Kansas City, edge rush teams are all over this one, even for if it takes a mid-round pick. And I realize that's steep, but this is a guy who's producing on nothing. It's, it's pure value. So he's on the list. And similarly, he's falling out of favor in Philly pretty quickly. Derek Barnett is on an expiring contract. They restructured the heck out of this thing. It's down to a minimum salary. $600,000 to get Derek Barnett off the trade block right now if he's available. I think these two options are phenomenal in terms of defensive acquisitions at this deadline, and I think both should be considered highly. So here's one that's less likely in terms of linebackers. Miles Jack, I mentioned and had my Jaguars rant there. This is an inside linebacker who can do kind of everything. He's inconsistent with it. There's three years left in this contract, but only this year's guaranteed right now. It's basically two years of fluff after this, about $22 million and change of fluff. So it's a little less than $6 million, which is a little bit on the steeper side. That's probably why it's unlikely. But he's a cornerstone piece. Uh, I mean, this has Baltimore, Indy, 
you know, one of those middling teams, maybe even not a true contender, maybe one of those teams that's looking about thinking about next year with this guy and they want to address a need right now. I, I like this this move, maybe not so much now, but after this season for one of those middling teams who wants to take a step forward with their defense. So uh, he's on the list because I think it's possible, but I think it's more likely after the season. All right, secondary, there's two big names here. Joe Hayden, I mentioned the Steelers. If they want to rip it down, you know, the defensive side of the ball is where most of their money is allocated right now. And who knows what their quarterback position looks like next year. So I don't know what Mike Tomlin's thinking about this roster. Uh, I think when Smith-Schuster hit the IR, things got really downward trending with that roster. So there's two big names here on this list, of course. Hayden has been kind of on the bubble list for two, three years with me. I just think he's been overpriced. Uh, He's doing plenty of production productive work for this team. And I think you can do that for one of these NFC West teams, right? Specifically, uh, maybe a Packers team who lost Jair Alexander for a few weeks. I, I do think there's, there's some teams out there thinking this guy's the veteran help we need. Certainly Tampa Bay needs secondary help if they haven't gotten it already, but it's about 3.8, 3.9 million to acquire Joe Hayden right now at this deadline, which is on the steeper side. But you know, it's a third of what Xavier Howard costs, who is the other guy on this list in terms of cornerbacks on the block. So I put Hayden on the on the possible list. I'd put Xavier Howard on the not likely list. But here's the numbers on Howard, because I know a lot of people have asked about this one. Yes, they restructured him. Yes, they kind of moved some money around to make sure he had more guaranteed cash this year. They have paid quite a bit, but the dead cap still is in Miami's favor to do this. It, it's almost eight and a half million for a new team to get him this year. That's fully guaranteed. Then there's about 7 million fully guaranteed next year. So that's what you're dealing with in terms of the contract. But look, let's be real about what this is. You're renting Howard for a year on that current salary, 8.5 million. And then you're going to have to rip it up and start over if you want to keep him because he's not happy about the rest of his contract. And I don't know, there's three years left, right? Three years and almost 38 million left in this contract. So do you just turn that into, you know, four years and 70 million, whatever it's going to take to keep him around? Possibly. You may have to possibly do something like that. But he uh, he certainly wants an upgrade. So this is not just a, a one-year rental. This is a rental with, if you want me long-term, if you're giving up a second-round pick to get me, it's going to be, you know, 20 million a year-ish from here out after this season. So there's a lot of baggage with X Howard. I, I don't think Joe Hayden has those kind of demands at his age. You know, you'd be renting him truly for less than four million for one year and then seeing what you can do after that. So that's a quick list. I'll be continuing to tweet these. Uh, like I said, at SpotTrack on Twitter, I've been doing a big, big thread with these kind of breakdowns. And as names pop up and as names come to my head, as, you know, some needs happen, especially if we have some injuries this week, last minute, because that trade deadline's Tuesday, next Tuesday. So we're going to get through week eight games, assess where teams are in the standings with injuries. And then we'll be able to f- you know, fully evaluate that Tuesday deadline day, which I think could be fairly active based on what I was saying here. All right, let's talk some baseball with Hembo. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Balance Bridge Funding, providing cost-friendly capital solutions to professional athletes since 2015. Balance Bridge has the dedicated professionals who understand this industry and can customize your payment plan catered to your client's situation and financial objectives. Borrow wisely, avoid broker fees, and there's no penalties if you pay it back early. Whether your client is currently under contract and needs a bridge against guaranteed earnings, a free agent looking for their next contract, or looking to borrow for any other reason, 
Let Balanced Bridge take a look, provide a solution, and be a resource for you today. Visit balancedbridge.com. Okay, it's been too long. Super thrilled to have him back on the show. And look, it's his time of year, right? I can't say that our, either of our teams are doing anything meaningful right now. At least your team, Paul, has a uh, decent front office. Mine can't even get an interview. Uh, Hembo, welcome back to the show. <laughs> yeah, let's not uh, talk mean, Mets today. How about that, bro? To call the Phillies front office a decent front office well, is, is is ridiculous. But I mean, from where you're coming from, I, I guess I can commiserate a little. Yeah, the only uh, the only update I get in my phone about the Mets these days is another guy bailing out on a job interview. So that's good oh, news. It's a great start to this offseason. Let's talk about the in season still because it's pretty damn uh, attractive. It's watchable. It's historic in a lot of ways i guess let's just start with there you know we're uh, a couple of minutes here from game two as we record this that was a pretty great game one is are these two teams that you thought would be this intriguing or was this is this kind of sneaking up on us i think it's sneaking up on us collectively obviously if you're a, um, a baseball nerd a geek like you and i are this is the kind of series that we wanted like it doesn't have a lot of sex appeal but what it does have is some pretty decent, uh, you know, under the radar storylines. It has some, I guess, some narrative in terms of the Astros trying to vindicate, you know, the 2017 cheating stuff. It has, you know, Freddie Freeman in the World Series for the first time. And I think that's going to provide him something of a springboard to the Hall of Fame. But what I'm happy about is, is you're, you're, at, you're just getting two excellent teams. You're, this is not a circumstance in which a team lucked into a couple series wins like we've seen in the past. I mean, the, 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 we need to stop referring to the Braves as the 88 win Braves. I mean, <laughs> they've won, they won 44 of their last 66 games. They've been objectively in every, by any real standard of measure, better than the Astros over the last three full months. And the way that Alex Anthopoulos was able to maneuver at the trade deadline for my money is going, is going to go down as, as one of the truly great like in season years that any executive has ever had. I mean, to me, it's 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 no worse than what Theo Epstein did in 2004. Like it's that kind of good. And so obviously they have, uh, you know, they have to you know win three more games. And by the time you listen to this podcast, maybe it's only two more games. But the bo- the bottom line of it is that's a like fr- from from the Braves' perspective, that's sort of my big picture takeaway. What that guy did to put this team in a position is extraordinary. And from the perspective of the Astros, um, you know, big picture, we're looking at a scenario in which. Both Correa and Altuve, I think, can really vindicate themselves in some sense and put themselves back on a Hall of Fame track and hopefully um, put 2017 behind them. I think that's right. And all I keep thinking about as I lead up to this, because you know, obviously I'm breaking down numbers that are relevant mm-hmm. and those that kind of sit outside of these teams. Don't you feel like if Verlander and Acuna Jr. were on this team, a, they'd still be here, right? They'd, they'd mm-hmm. probably still get to this, but they'd be so much more attractive to to the bigger audiences because you'd have the, you know, the youth appeal of Acuna and certainly the uh, the, the longstanding Hall of Fame career of Verlander to be talking about. We have to sort of reach for a storyline in this one, and they're giving it to us on the field. But if mm-hmm. you just look at a lineup, nothing's really popping out outside of. You're right, Freeman's a good story, and his expiring contract even makes that more attractive. But I've had to really dig to figure out why these teams are here. And mm-hmm. all I found is that there's a reason all of these teams were in this in the running for it. it baseball to me is really simple. And, and this is a conversation I've been waiting to have with you for a, quite a while now, Paul. Mm. Are, we're overthinking this thing, man. Everybody, even the guys cl- close to it, like you and I are, think are really overthinking this. And I'll give you two directions. Do you want to start with hitting or pitching? <laughs> 
let's start. Let's start with the pitching. Uh, I have I have some I have I have some thoughts on both. I prepared for both, but let's start with the pitching because that's been I think something of an afterthought in the build up to this series. So start there. Okay, uh, then let's go with the starting pitching because if I look at stats, just team stats from this year, and I and I roll it back a few years. Here's the here's the number I'm going to give you. I'm just going to look at quality starts through mm-hmm. the, through the season. The league average is 53, and if I told you that the league average was 67 in 2018, that's probably all you need to know about where I'm going with this conversation because, mm. because what are we doing here with these guys? First of all, we're still paying them $30-plus million to our, to our superstar starting pitchers. And then second of all, now we're using everybody you know, unbelievably less. And generally, I'd be okay with that if we're talking June, July, August, right? The dog days. Right. But now we're here. Now we're in the most impactful time of the year. And, and if you're still standing, you're supposed to have four to five, you know, it used to be six, seven guys who you could throw on that mound and they could go eight. How did we get here so quickly? And are we here to stay? <laughs> uh, both are excellent questions. I, we, can, we can break this down in two ways. From the top down, Major League Baseball executives uh, in front offices, smart front offices, have essentially figured out that we're better off being able to just deploy, you know, a bunch of, you know, one inning, you know, specialist types than we are to allow our, you know, starting pitcher, even if he's a really good one, to see the order even for the third time. That's obviously not news to you. But, I mean, it works out in that way. I mean, this postseason starter is only 6.82 ERA right. navigating the order for the third time. Theoretically, obviously, you're dealing with the best lineups, but also in theory, you're dealing with the best pitchers. This postseason, on average, starters are getting 12 outs, 12 outs on average, four innings. It's preposterous. So, and it would obviously be the lowest in a postseason all time. So that's what, that, that's sort of like the trickle down effect from the front offices, you know, to you know, t- telling all their managers and their coaches, this is the this strategy works best almost regardless of who's throwing for us. And then what happens beneath the water is the, in the AAU circuit and in college and in the minor leagues, pitchers aren't forced to learn to pitch with any stamina. And so what you now have is a bunch of people who are as skilled as they've ever been. I mean, these pitchers are unbelievable. I mean, you put Charlie Morton stuff in the 80s, like we're talking about Roger Clemens, right? I mean, we're talking the, the stuff you see every night is legendary. But they can only do it for a minute. The candle blows out really quick. So I think it works sort of both ways. Because we've decided this is the best way to do it, that's how you get the sort of deployment you see in the postseason. And because we've decided this is the way to do it, we don't have the opportunity for young pitchers to train their arms the way that they used to. And what you get, in my opinion at least, is something of a long, drawn-out, even watered-down product, even in our best games, which I think is fairly unfortunate. Okay, that's the perfect transition. That's exactly what I was going to counter with, is even if it works, even if the numbers match up, even if it's going to elongate you know, careers, because you know the reason that they're not getting stretched out is they're trying to, 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 to not have a Tommy John surgery by 18 years old. Let's be perfectly honest. That's what's happening yep. to many of these players over the 90s and early 2000s. So you're right. It's about the product, though. And if I look at hockey, if I look at football... They both went through these iterations in the past 15 years or so. Hockey, when they came out of their, their recent lockout, you know, that was probably 20 years ago now, it was all about we have to make the game faster on the ice because that's the only way people want to watch this thing. We have to open it up. We can't be defensive-minded, right? And then football did the exact same thing. They looked at a bunch of running backs and said, yeah, you're fine, but people want to watch long 60-yard touchdown passes from superstar quarterbacks. So they changed the rules accordingly to make it better on the, on the field to watch. 
Mm. Does baseball have to do this? Is that part of this offseason lockout conversation? Is, is the product on television, is the product that's sitting in the stands? Uh, 100%. It is my opinion that Major League Baseball should be willing to concede a bunch of stuff, a bunch of short-term stuff, in order to essentially bludgeon the players' union with all the big-picture changes that will sort of pay it forward. I think baseball, both both the you know the union and the commissioner's office, do a bad job of living in the moment, if you will, rather than looking towards the future. So, sure, you might be maximizing your television dollars today by starting this game tonight at eight o'clock. But what you guarantee is that you miss an entire generation of kids to be able to watch the most important games on TV. That's, that's the bottom line. And so what you need is to not only create, what you need to do is be able to create incentive or requirement for teams to be able to elongate their starting pitchers, whether it be by, uh, you know, roster construction, whether it be, by, you know, by the, 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 the DH rule to incentivize, you know, there are, there are a number of things that, fit that description but it is my opinion that that should be baseball's number one priority and if they have to concede some stuff to the players in the short term to make them feel better financially i think it's worth it because theo epstein sort of built this monster you know with with the analytics movement now he's working for major league baseball as he's watching this never ending slog like we are he has to be thinking the same thing to himself he just has to be there's this has to be baseball's number one priority as they move into the future. And the next CBA, obviously, I mean, this thing is a behemoth. And there's, I mean, they're not going to see eye to eye on anything. No. But I think baseball can definitely, what they definitely can do is create, I don't know, a list of a dozen things that they think will be able to sort of curtail this. Because the problem is not only, you know, the, the game is slower and longer than ever before, but society is moving faster than ever before. And those sort of uh, diverging um uh, ideals, of course, puts baseball in a very tough position. I mean, you, the average NBA game is something like two and a half hours. Baseball's timelessness was once a strength. It is now an obvious liability from where I sit. And there, you don't know anyone who's a bigger baseball fan than I am. So I'm in favor of, of limiting the number of pitchers you can carry or even use in a game. Uh, I'm in favor of attaching the starting pitcher to the DH. I'm in favor of a pitch clock now. I, I, I have like my baseball um, puristness, if you will, is being kick to the curb um, merely because I would like to be able to go to bed before midnight on a game in which there's a World Series. So let me play devil's advocate. Let me play, I guess, Tony Clark and the players here because it's, you're right. It's going to be a monster. It's going to be contentious as hell, and I think that's already st- you know long started. Um, mm-hmm. This conversation we're having specifically about starting pitching, if we're, yeah. if we're saying, right, we need to reduce active pitchers, we need to reduce pitching changes, things that have started to happen already, then I'm from the Players Association saying, okay, but what's going to happen contractually, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, what's going to happen? If, if we're already seeing a devaluation to the starting pitcher, but more pitchers are seeing action, does that mean then that while salaries will drop, we'll have more players making 10 to 15 million or, or 5 to 10 million than I've ever been been in the, in, in the history of the sport. So is mm-hmm. that a concession that the players association wants to deal with versus we got to make sure that, you know, Max Scherzer and Shohei Otani and the big time pitchers in this game, Garrett Cole are making top dollar because that's what moves this game forward. I'm not sure I know the answer and I do this for a living. <laughs> I don't either. And so do I, here's what I will say. I was, I used your site to, put, to dig out the data and I sent Buster only a bunch of numbers last week. There is no question. The data makes it exceedingly clear that the starting pitcher is not just being devalued in the 
amount of innings that they were being asked to pitch, the starting pitcher is being devalued in terms of how much money we're, we're willing to pay them. Yeah. And so, and, and that is a, and that is a linear trend. And so like, if, yes, I would be a little worried if I were Tony Clark, the idea of, you know, constricting, you know, roster sizes and such, because like that could wind up costing my pitcher's jobs, but it could also, we could also reach a point in which, you know, Hero Cole 20 years from now becomes Andre Drummond, an all-time great center of statistically that is going to make the veteran minimum. That's the path that we're on. So in my opinion, this is actually uh, an area in which Major League Baseball and the union can see eye to eye somewhat. I, I think for, 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 what they, for what the union might lose in terms of the volume of pitchers that are going to be asked, whose names are going to be called, I think they more than make up for if that position becomes a premium one again. Do you think I have that right? I think so. And I think it's even just another vote of confidence for a salary floor. I think that has to, it's got to be a part of this because that will at least safeguard, you know, some of the devaluation as it's happening. I think we can all concede that it's going to happen because the math isn't going away and, and just going to have front offices that, that will, you know, use that as a crutch, even though the two that are in the world series aren't super, super big on that. Um, Right. But there are going to be, areas where we can clean this up. And I do think a floor is where we start. If I told you this, this is the number that shot out to me this morning, because obviously it's where I went, went to look this morning. The number 11 average ranked pitcher in terms of pay next year right now is Charlie Morton. <laughs> so he, he got a $20 million extension. It's basically two for 40. You know what I mean? And yeah. that 20 million per year is 11th right now. And if I told you that Johnny Cueto's ninth and David Price is fourth. You can throw those two out right now. So he's top ten. Charlie, thirty-seven-year-old Charlie Morton is top ten in in pitcher pay. Think things are broken, or either broken, or they're just going in the wrong direction for this sport. So, uh, yeah, it's a big deal, and we're seeing it on the field too, which is unfortunate because it's a bad watch. Let's talk uh, hitting real quick here. The mm-hmm. stat that I, I I look to, and I realize I get made fun of all the time for this because I know that this is not advanced in any metric, but it, to me, it's still OPS. And guess what? Mm-hmm. It's still the stat that, that has all these playoff teams at the top. Houston's second. Boston's third. The Giants are fourth. The Dodgers are sixth. Atlanta's eighth. It, it's still where these teams live. If you can get on base in some capacity, and I realize that's a 40-year-old tradition at this point, that mm-hmm. seems to be the winning formula. So why aren't we playing more small ball? Why are these teams still trying to hit the ball out of the ballpark if getting on base is literally all that matters? <laughs> because the pitching is too good. Because it's impossible good to answer. string three. Because it's impossible to string three hits together. The pitching's so good because you're asking your pitcher to throw ten pitches a game. Seven of them are at ninety-seven. The other three are fall off the table sliders better than you've ever seen anyone in your life. And so the 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 hitting coaches around baseball are telling their guys even with two strikes, our best chance to spike win probability is if you swing out of your butt at Homer. I, I think there is absolutely something to be said about the value of putting the ball in play. The Astros lead the, you know, lead the league in contact rate this year, and there is a uh, distinct correlation between teams that are good at that and teams that wind up winning the World Series. But there's also plenty of teams atop that leaderboard that don't make it anywhere near there because they can't do enough damage. Like right now, I view, I view hitting in baseball the way that I, do, I view offense in the NFL. Whereas we went from being like a ball, a ball control league, three yards in a cloud of dust. It's an explosive play league. Now, if you want to know how good an offense is, all you have to do is look up how many 20 yard plays they have. Right. Yeah. In baseball, it's about that. It's about the, the amount of damage you can do per swing. 
And so because the pitching is so good, the idea that you're going to be able to string together three hits is nearly impossible. And so that's why building a team around a bunch of guys that can hit three run homers is the best way to do it. The problem is that because the pitching is so good, homering is obviously harder too. And so if that's, if you're a one trick pony, you wind up, you know, what happened to the Yankees this year, you know, whereas the Astros can do both. So, but there, but it's so rare that you can, you know, compile a lineup of players that can do both. It's, you almost have to choose one or the other. It makes it nearly impossible because that's how hard hitting is, you know, these days. That's why you only have a handful of, you know, 300 hitters in any uh, given season, even though we know that's you know, only a proxy for how, you know, you know, good you might be as a hitter. So that's sort of a roundabout answer. But ultimately, I think the, w- I think the way that teams are doing it now is the right way to do it. It's, 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 it's to combat pitching, which is, I think, 10 or 15 years ahead of the, of the bats at this point. Okay. It seems kind of irrelevant to do this, but I, I enjoy doing it. So I'm, I'm just going to do it. Let's talk mm. about some free agents, even though <laughs> you know where I'm going. I have no idea Go. when these guys are going to be available to sign a contract because right. it's going to be an ugly couple of winter months here. But uh, Ooh, yeah. look, we have what could be one of the most polarizing positional free agent breakdowns ever in terms of these shortstops. I mean, in a given, in a good year, right? When everything's rolling the right way, you're talking a billion dollars worth of contracts here. It's just uh, a great crop, starting with Correa and Corey Seager and Trevor Story, which each could get themselves two fifty to three hundred million dollars mm-hmm. if everything's you know going the right way. I, I guess let's just kind of rank these things. You know, who's who's to stay, who's to go? Is anybody? Do you think any of these major shortstops stay? Because I'm not sure uh, I'm leaning that way at all. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is unlikely that any of them do. Yeah. I, I, there's, there seems to be a lot of debate as to the order in which these guys should be ranked. To me, it's exceedingly clear that so long as the medicals check out, Carlos Correa is the number one guy on that list. I mean, to me, Carlos Correa should get a Manny Machado type contract so long as the back is okay. okay. He is, he is on a Hall of Fame track, in my opinion. And again, you're pending medicals, but it's not like Corey Seager is has a has had a clean bill of health historically either. To me, Carlos Correa makes a ton of sense for the Detroit Tigers because of his connection with A.J. Hinch and because of all the money that they have available, that, they're, that they are um, available to spend, especially when that team's about a year ahead of schedule. They were a lot better this year. If you look at you know what they were able to do after, the, you know, after we hit Memorial Day, that was a good baseball team. Yeah. That might be Carlos Correa away from being a wild card team. I think Seager, I think Corey Seager is very likely to wind up with the Yankees who <laughs> – are going to be, look, it's just perfect, right? Like they, they desperately need a shortstop. And I think he can at least fake it there for a few years. They desperately need a left-handed bat. And obviously he's probably the best one on the market. It just makes too much sense. I don't exactly know how much he'll command to me. It probably won't be quite as much as Correa, but he's, that just seems like a match that makes, that makes too much sense to me. I'm a little bit less, I, I, I have a little less clarity on, on Semyon and a little less clarity on Trevor story. Story is a guy who I think has lost a considerable amount of value over the last couple of years in terms of his own performance, I think there's obvious question about his course field split and he just hasn't hit the last two years, but he's probably the likeliest among that group to stay at that position. To me, he's actually a reasonably good option for a team that's not dying to spend $200 million. And candidly, I wouldn't be all that eager to give a nine figure contract to Marcus Simeon as great as he has been over the last three years, you know, in the aggregate, he's really had two outstanding seasons and those were the years in which, you know, those were his contract years around a bunch of, uh, you know, so, and I'm not even sure he's a shortstop either. To me, as I just continue to ramble here, the most intriguing name amongst these position players is someone else who I think might be able to play shortstop for a club, and that's Chris Taylor. We devalue defense now, and Chris Taylor is someone that I think that can fake it at shortstop, and you can pay him a lot less than almost any of those other guys. 
And if you view him as a poor man's Chris Bryant, which you reasonably could based upon the bat profile, based upon his position versatility, I think if you're looking at this thing sort of big picture, he might be the, the, the position player at least that I think is the best of value of any this uh, this offseason. What do you think? I'd agree with that. I think he's in this conversation. And look, if you're talking defense, you got to talk Javi Baez there too, even though I, I don't know where he would rank in terms of many of these front offices. I think he's got a lot more cons than pros for a lot of them. But Oh yeah. Uh, certainly from a defensive standpoint, he can help you win games. It's just he's a he's a liability at the plate at this point. But no doubt. Chris Taylor's versatility is big and I, you know, he's linked to the Zobrist and the Matt Carpenters of, of the world because that's what, kind of what we grew up on and those guys garner gigantic contracts, 18 to 20 million at the time when that wasn't happening for these kind of players. He can kind mm-hmm. of rebirth that conversation because if he finds a home that that has a specific role for him, that's going to help him financially. You know what I mean? If he's coming in as a as a as a four position player, I think he's down in the in the low teens. To be honest with you, he's he's like he's an eleven to twelve million dollar guy just statistically, Paul. So he's not in the twenty to twenty five million dollar conversation like like any of these guys have a starting floor at. So you're right with, in terms of value, but there's going to be three four teams in on him because they see options, like you said, with Chris Bryant outfield infield. And that's going to be attractive because you're right. Chris Taylor's got better numbers than Chris Bryant. Chris Taylor's got better numbers than Javi Baez right now. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, where he ranks, I think, in terms of the next three, four year window is going to make teams very, very attracted to him. But it's, it's a good crop of free agents. You know, if we add Freddie Freeman very. to this conversation, there's a mm. lot of position players who I think could get nice contracts. I think the days of free agent free agent position players getting 30, you know, top dollar is done. There's just been so many bad instances. You know, you mentioned Machado. He's just finally finding his sea legs in that contract. Uh, Who knows if Frankie Lindor will ever find his. Um, Anthony Rendon, my goodness, you know, there's just (laughs) just been a lot of bad situations. So I I do think this plus the CBA plus the lockout plus whatever happens with, you know, know, the competitive balance uh, conversation at the end of the day is going to suppress all of these salaries. Um, but it's a great group of guys. You're right. There's a lot of versatility here, which you certainly need right now. And let's be honest, because of the conversation we just have, you probably need that as a pitcher or a hitter, hitter right now. You've got to be able to do everything all the time to be able to stick in this league. It's a very difficult sport to, to play professional in right now. Uh, yeah, I think um, for you and Buster, I talked to now you, both of you guys about this. Both of you seem to think that the spending this offseason is going to be a little bit more suppressed or abbreviated yeah. than I do. Obviously, the CBA is like the elephant in the room. There's really no way to to know or to predict. And I think you'll see, because of that, almost like two months of nothing, or at least a month of nothing, right? We know that. But I'm not convinced that the new CBA won't inflate this free agent class because who knows? Like, I think if, if first of all, there's a salary floor. There you go. If they're forced it's, to it's, do it, man, right? You're, there are just more teams that have to bite the apple. If they're forced to do it, so like uh, this is not, this is not likely. But for example, if if the Baltimore Orioles decided, all right, we got to get to 100 million, we can give Carlos Correa 40 of that, right? Because I mean, like yeah. you know, same goes. Pittsburgh Pittsburgh is another example. I don't like I don't think that's likely. But in 2001 or whatever it was, you know, the the, the Rangers gave a Rod that that monster contract, and he was the highest paid player on the team by a factor of like five, right? That's not out of the question now like if there's a, like if there's a team out there almost willing to give a max contract if you will and to be able to fill out the rest of their roster accordingly 
all it takes is one. Like the Detroit Tigers are a good example of that club without much, you know, payroll to worry about at the moment. They could say like, we have the money to spend in the interim. We're going to make this guy our backbone. Let's go for it. And also I'm not convinced that the, the players are going to agree to anything approximating a lower luxury tax threshold either at the top on the top end. I mean, so like obviously both of those, the, both of those extremes go a long way in impacting like what, what the free agent crop winds up getting. But Every time Buster gives me a number, for example, I hit the I think the over on a bunch of different guys. And I'm, I'm, I'm if you and I did the same exercise based upon your valuations, I'm guessing I hit the over on at least two thirds of them. But maybe I'm maybe I'm delusional. I think it's fair. And and even if they do this, because this is essentially what any of the NFL does with their cash spending, they give you three years, three to five years based on the iteration of the CBA. Uh, mm. to, to get to basically spend X percent of whatever the cash floor would be, right? So, if, so if right. they if they initiate a hundred million dollar floor, they'll say you have to have an average of a hundred million over the next three years, right? Um, in terms of your floor, so you, you know. But even if that's the case, this crop is still so good that right. you may have the Tigers and the Blue Jays and and the Baltimore Orioles and the Diamondbacks saying, "Hey, this is the time to strike." Who knows mm-hmm. what we're going to have in 2023 available to us? So yeah, I do think the guys who deserve it will get what they what they deserve to some yeah. degree. I just don't think you're going to have bidding wars that push contracts way up. So let me ask you this question. Actually, I'll get I'll get you out of here on this because this has been a really good talk. Um, we've had this conversation before. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent against long contracts in all sports, mm-hmm. and it's 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 gotten healthier in the NBA. It's getting healthier in the NFL. Actually, a lot healthier in the NFL in terms of guarantees versus length of contract. And I think the pandemic actually helped this to some degree. How do we make this happen in baseball, Paul? How do we do it? Because I think you started on, on an interesting discussion there with if there's a floor, but also if there's no, there's no bringing in the tax, right? Maybe even pushing right. the tax out a little bit, maybe even having tiers of tax levels where you're allowed to go over to some degree. If for yeah. certain players, if it's the sign of free agent, the NBA has got a lot of screwy rules like this where there's rights involved, right? Like, like keeping your own player essentially doesn't impact your cap space, but adding new does. Mm-hmm. There's all right. of these these monikers that could be included to Major League Baseball to not only force spending, right? Add, adding players with bigger contracts so your middle class comes up, but also how do we get 13-year deals for Bryce Harper out of this conversation? How do we get Bryce Harper on a six-year contract where he's making great money, but also keeps him tantalizing, right? Keeps him. In, we, we no longer have to care about Bryce Harper at all. He's locked into this contract on this team that could trade him at some point, but they don't have to do anything. It's Mike Trout. It's Bryce Harper. These superstars mm-hmm. are just boring as hell transactionally. So how does this new CBA affect that so that those guys don't want to go get 13, 13 year deals. They want to get four to six year deals so that they're relevant. Mm, um, it's a wonderful question. First of all, let me ask you this. Who who does the you know the 10, 12, 14 year contract hurt the most? Does it hurt the player that signs? Does it hurt the agent? Does it hurt the league? Does it hurt the the just the coverage of the stuff? Like where like I, I agree with you fundamentally that I think it's the latter part. I think it's it's okay. all of us suffer because we forget about Bryce Tar- Bryce Harper's not relevant at all in any offseason. You know what I mean? And and he's the guy that would draw the most attention. 
you know, give or take a few names. But mm-hmm. I, I do think that is what basketball has over everybody right now, and including over football. They own the offseason. July 1st, it's all NBA. It's all mm-hmm. anybody wants to look at because every superstar has a what if attached to them. And, and in a league that's looking for eyeballs, you know, you can fix the game and time clocks and all that. That's going to help for sure. But if your superstars aren't constantly in the rotation and not forcibly being put in the rotation, right? it's just never going to get there. And I do think this is a very, very simple way to, to fix two problems. A, I don't think 13-year contracts are good for the team. Do you? Is, uh, no, is anybody happy with Miguel Cabrera or Albert Pujols right now? No, that's not a situation we want to be in. Right. I agree with that, too. Now, the way that baseball does it, obviously, is... I mean, the, re- the reason that teams favor these deals, at least are willing to do them, is because it spreads out the luxury tax money, that's right? right. Th- that, that's, to me, like, that's the way, uh, just, just top of my head right now, that's the best way to avoid a circumstance like this in which that incentive is gone. And if that incentive is gone, what you, I think, will likely see is in the short term, teams value the short term high AAV contract. If you might recall, like, I think it was the Dodgers and the Phillies there at the end. Dodgers were willing to give him a you know more money per year on a much shorter deal, and Bryce chose the longer contract because that's what he prioritized. Well, if you reduce the incentive structure so the Phillies don't feel like in order to give this guy the money that he wants, they have to spread this out into um, into eternity and beyond, then perhaps that's a good solution. I don't I don't know what the union is going to be willing to go for because I'm guessing the players love the idea of having that long term stability. I'm not sure that's a fight that they can win. And while I do think that the transactional piece of the NBA and the NFL in some sense is something that they have over baseball by a long shot, I just I think baseball has bigger fish to fry, to be frank. I I don't think that I don't think that I don't disagree with anything that you said. I think it's actually a brilliant point. But like if I'm if I'm ranking the things about baseball that we'd like to change, that's that's lower on the list than a bunch of other stuff that's more top of mind. So are you recommending that the average salary does not factor into the competitive back t- tax balance anymore? Something like that. Like I haven't it's year to year? Uh, clearly. Yes, perhaps something along those lines. Or be- because merely taking that average and spreading it out makes it so that teams can do this so easily. But I'm with you. It's, hmm. it's not only it's – not, it's not like the teams wind up losing. And what winds up happening is like you're just going to end up having like, – Fernando Tatis in three years is just going to have to be traded to one of three teams that are willing to pay him because they can afford him, right? It gets, it is, it is ugly and messy. And then players in the short term, I think, will have the opportunity then to bet on themselves in a way and make more money per year. You see these ridiculous NBA contracts. Like I'm not sure that's not more attractive than what baseball has. You know, for, when with this Trevor Bauer thing that happened last year, oh, right? You took if, the words if, out if, of my mouth. Right. If like if if Freddie Freeman signed a a three year. $150 million contract this offseason, you don't think there'd be players around the sport looking over and saying, that's not such a bad idea. But like, it has to I work. Like, but it has to work. Like, if, if I'll give you the two has, examples in these work. sports, right? Like, Trevor Bauer right. is the baseball example. Kirk Cousins is the football example. Is right. anybody happy with how that's going in the NFL? No, that's not a modeling, no. that's not a modeling contract. In fact, no, like he's like, already to eat more just to get out of that first contract. So... This Trevor Bauer one was the one I was hanging my hat on, and then it turns out, you know, we know what we know now. But yeah, that that's, that's that that thing. needed to work to start the trend. You're right. Freeman could be a guy that can do that. But I'm not even a fan of the the threshold to begin with, to be honest with you, because I, I mean I understand why they have I understand why the baseball has it in place. But I mean, to me, like what you're doing is just suppressing innovation, and then you, and then it becomes an artificial salary cap. Like baseball would be better without that, with a floor. Like like who knows if 
who knows if they can negotiate that into the into the thing. Obviously, like, these things are so incredibly complicated. Like, the things that we just talked about, even in principle, if everyone wanted them, might take three CBAs to actually pull off, right? But in reality, baseball baseball would be in a better place if that was not, if, if if Bryce Harper was in a Philly for the next ten years. I agree with you. I agree. I, I agree with what you just said as well, and we'll finish off on that. I I think that I think the ceiling should go away. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. Uh, because the simpler way to do what I just proposed, which is to sort of drive more uh, more attention, more eyeballs, is to let the big fish be big fish. Let the Yankees uh, be the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Let the Dodgers be the Dodgers. Let Boston spend. Because guess what? When Now, now Pittsburgh and, and Baltimore and those teams that refuse to do it, they're going to have a lot more regional pressure. To be to say, hey, you gotta, you know, if you're not an owner that's willing to do this, then you can't be our owner anymore. You know what I mean? Because that's yeah. just how it's gonna work. I do think that in this social media era, in this fan player driven era, a lot more pressure can be put on than baseball's even allowing for right now. And that's an owner's thing. They're winning, but that's part of this conversation too, right? How do we get that more pressure from the outside sources in? Uh, we, we saw the, the Rays went to the World Series last year. The Royals went to the World Series in 2015. Yeah. We saw the Pirates uh, build a, a sort of like mini, like mini NL Central juggernaut deal you know, with the pitch framing and the shifting. And, like, we know that smart baseball can yield good results reg- almost regardless of what you're spending, right? So there is no obvious reason to me why the Yankees should, should, be, you know, should be sending emails to their season ticket holders you know, worried that they're going to exceed the luxury tax threshold. I mean, this it's around. It's, let's be honest; like, that's a rounding error for anyone whose last name is Steinbrenner, right? And so that, that's how I see these things. I, I I agree with you. the The need for that on the top end is merely an excuse for people not to spend more money. Like that that there are other functions of it, but it does more harm than good. And if you got rid of it, I think you'd get a lot more of oh, that's a massive short contract, and then you have you know the the year-to-year transaction, you know, the discussion of all that stuff, like we talked about at the time, you don't. It's not just bad that you know Tatis is going to play for a decade and a half in San Diego. It's bad that we're not going to have to have the chance to talk about where he might play. That's a that's a thing that baseball is definitely missing. And I think the luxury tax threshold, the you know the ridiculous you know, the, the ridiculous purposes that it serves, goes a long way in undermining a lot of the the fun parts about baseball that other sports get to enjoy. Does Saquon Barkley get a contract? <laughs> I, I mean, not, not if, not if they're smart. I mean, I don't know that Dave Gettleman will be the one making that decision. Um, Ooh, hot take. I mean, I mean, it's not even a hot take. I mean, the Giants have been the worst team in football since he became their GM. So, my, my expectation is that it'll be the, you know, the job of the new GM to, to make that decision. And a smart person would, would say no. That's, that's my opinion. You're the best. Enjoy the World Series, bud. Uh, you too, bud. Take care. He's at Paul Hembo on Twitter. He's a great follow. He's the producer of Get Up. He's with Greeny every day, radio and television. And he's with Buster Only often on his podcast as well. He's a big-time numbers guy, big-time sports guy, great guest of this show. My thanks to Paul. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash track for 40% off your first year. And, of course, to Balanced Bridge Funding. Visit balancebridge.com. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Gennetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Track Podcast. 